All right, well, it's about two minutes after the hour. I know some people will continue to kind of funnel in, but I want to make sure Dr. Valley has plenty of time, and this is a, a obviously a very important topic. So um, I wanted to welcome to University of Maryland, Dr. Tom Valley. So Dr. Valley is uh, currently at the University of Michigan. Um, he did his undergraduate degree at Emory and then his medical degree at University of Miami uh, before going to UT Southwestern. He went to University of Michigan for his pulmonary and critical care fellowship and has remained there, as he just told me, for about a decade or so. Um, I invited him to speak here on this really important topic as part of our DEI curriculum, which is uh, race, risk, and structural racism. Dr. Valley, thank you so much for being here. I really look forward to this talk. Thanks, Andy. I'm excited to be here, excited to um, chat with you guys, and certainly I'd love for this to be more of a conversation. So if questions come up, um, feel free to jump in anytime. I'd like to um, start off by just acknowledging some grant funding from several organizations. I have no uh, conflicts of interest to disclose related to this talk or anything else. And I think it's really important that we kind of lay a foundation overall for this talk. Um, and, and that really is that there are many different layers of racism that exist within our society. And today we'll be focusing on its institutional and structural forms. And in institutional and structural racism really work hand in hand. Um, institutional racism uh, relates to, obviously, the institutions within our society, healthcare, education, uh, criminal justice. And structural racism shapes and affects the lives um, of, of people of color, and it normalizes historical, cultural, institutional practices um, that benefit one group um, and disadvantage others. And these forms of racism uh, will be interlaced uh, throughout today's talk. So over the course of the next hour, we'll talk a lot about risk in clinical medicine. So-and-so is at risk for this. And oftentimes we try to make connections when we don't have enough evidence to really actually make those connections. And it's easy for our minds to see physical differences uh, between people based on the color of their skin um, or the language that they speak and assume that that must mean that something biological or inherent to the to the body is manifesting in physical disease. Over the course of today's discussion, we'll examine um, this relationship between risk and race and ethnicity, and we'll go through two case studies um, that demonstrate how we often assume incorrectly about this relationship. I wanted to start by offering an example from um, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis and lung transplants. In the early 2000s, uh, there was a belief that black and Hispanic patients with IPF had worse outcomes than white patients. And this was demonstrated in several retrospective studies. And there were assumptions that there may be genetic factors that predispose these individuals to have worse disease severity um, and worse outcomes. David Letter at Columbia looked into this relationship in more depth um, using uh, national lung transplant data um, and they performed a, a retrospective cohort study of about 2,500 patients um, with IPF listed for lung transplant between 1995 and 2003. And this was across 94 transplant centers in the U.S. And um, in agreement with the prior work, they found um, that age-adjusted mortality rate was higher among uh, black patients and Hispanic patients compared to white patients. And specifically, they found that the baseline risk of mortality was 24% higher among black patients and 29% higher uh, for Hispanic patients compared to white patients. Um, and these findings persisted after adjustment for um, demographics, 
for, and, uh, for medical comorbidities and for socioeconomic factors. But interesting, interestingly, um, when they accounted for lung function at the time of listing, differences by race and ethnicity were no longer statistically significant. And this suggests that worse lung function at the time of diagnosis appeared to explain some of these differences. And I think this um, passage that I took from their discussion is particularly important. They said, race may serve as a surrogate for a genetic profile, which produces a distinct disease phenotype. On the other hand, complex diseases such as IPF are characterized by complicated gene-environment interactions. So variability in a single locus is unlikely to explain our results. In addition, it is implausible that one or several high-risk genetic profiles cause similarly poor outcomes in the diversity of conditions which manifest racial disparities. For example, heart disease, lung cancer, asthma, pulmonary hypertension, and now IPS. So in summary, the authors are saying, yeah, it could be genetic, but that, that would require a whole lot of messed up genes to explain this long freaking list of medical conditions that exhibit racial and ethnic disparities. And so we often simplify relationships between race and ethnicity and death, kind of like we did early in the COVID pandemic, where people of color were more likely to contract and die from COVID, and we initially wondered, um, perhaps assumed, that there must be something genetic about these individuals that put them at risk for COVID. Yet what we now realize is that there are many mechanisms in between this relationship that have a stronger relationship with death than the color of one's skin. For example, when we think of pulmonary disease, we can think of some of these mechanisms, such as things that contribute to lung development early in life, like prenatal care, nutrition, pollution, um, or uh, from discrimination within the health system that results in poor access and care or having unequal quality of care. Specific to this transplant study, people of color might have had uh, worse pre-IPF care, slower referral for subspecialty IPF and transplant care, and then way further down the line is the possibility that these individuals might have genotypes or phenotypes that result in more severe disease. And so too often, race and ethnicity are conflated with biology and genetics. Instead, we need to recognize that race and ethnicity are social and cultural attributions associated with systemic inequities in risk and resources. Health disparities arise when social, political, and economic structures systematically expose certain groups of people to greater risk or limit access to timely evaluation and high-quality medical care. And these causes of disease, which include structural racism, are social in origin, not biological. In other words, Black and Hispanics do not die from IPF or COVID or critical illness at higher rates because of simply their race or ethnicity. They die at higher rates because of racism. So now I'd like to talk um, about two of our recent studies that shine a light on structural racism within medicine and its direct impact on patients. And uh, Andy told me that uh, Val came and spoke with you about pulse oximetry, so um, hopefully uh, not too much of this duplicates what she talked about before. 
So I wanted to start um, by talking about a patient that I, I thought about a lot over the past year or so. And she was a veteran at the Dallas VA when I was a, a resident there. And um, I actually wasn't even her main doctor, but I was covering for her overnight. And I was called to uh, her room around 2 a.m. Um, because she, wasn't, she was feeling more short of breath. And, you know, I did the usual things. I did an EKG, a chest X-ray, um, you know, examined her, looked at her vitals. And I, I, I vividly remember reassuring her, um, saying, you know, I know you feel short of breath, but let all your numbers and testing look great. Look, your, your option is 96%. Um, that's normal. And, and so I never really considered uh, until more recently that the device that I kind of treated as a gold standard could uh, treat people differently based on something so obvious as the color of their skin. And yet, um, there are numerous more lighthearted but still serious examples of devices uh, that have been calibrated based on color. Um, so, uh, let's, for example, um, in this video, which I hope will work, um, should work. Oh, here we go. Okay, go ahead. This is, um, again, meant to be funny, but it's, it's true, and it affects everything we do, right? Like, uh, many of these technologies, these devices, are based on um, and calibrated based on a certain group of people, um, and that impacts other groups of people differentially. And Val may have talked about this, but I just wanted to review um, how pulse oximeter works. A pulse oximeter's goal is to measure uh, the proportion of hemoglobin that's saturated with oxygen. Uh, and we most often use it, as you know, on the tip of one's finger. And on the top of this device are a pair of light-emitting diodes that send two wavelengths of light through the nail bed. On the other side of the device is a system to detect the light that is transmitted through the finger. So the pulse oximeter is detecting the difference between what light is sent out, what's absorbed, and then what's ultimately transmitted across. And there are two key scientific developments that allow pulse oximeters to work. First, that oxygenated and deoxygenated hemoglobin absorb light differently. On the x-axis here, we have wavelengths of light. We can see that red light at a wavelength of close to 700, deoxygenated hemoglobin is absorbed more than oxygenated hemoglobin. However, near infrared light at a wavelength near 900, oxygenated hemoglobin is absorbed more than deoxygenated hemoglobin. And so deoxygenated blood is more likely to transmit infrared light across the finger, while oxygenated blood is more likely to transmit red light across the finger. And the second scientific advance that um, dramatically improved the measurement of pulse oximeters is the use of the body's pulse. If you were to use a pulse oximeter on someone without a pulse, wouldn't work because the pulse oximeter makes use of differences in light absorption due to changes in blood volume to reliably measure differences between arterial and venous blood. And when you look at this figure, you and 
I and many others have uh, would have taken for granted that other things that might affect absorption, like skin tone, nail polish, the size of one's finger, should be held constant in this area of absor absorption due to tissue. And yet this was something that I never really considered dramatic. That is, until COVID really dramatically changed the types of patients we cared for at Michigan. Almost overnight, we went from our 20-bed medical ICU filled with about 80% white patients to a makeshift expanded ICU of about 150 beds uh, that was probably 80% black patients. And this figure shows how COVID disproportionately affected black individuals in Michigan. Where about 50% of the population is black, but about 55% of hospital deaths early in the pandemic were black. It was during this early part of the pandemic in March and April 2020 that uh, we clinicians in the ICU started to notice something funky. You know, we'd, um, we'd be getting these ABGs and they wouldn't be correlating with the pulse oximeter. The pulse oximeter would um, have higher readings in the, or, and the ABG oxygen saturation was a lot lower and it didn't really make sense. We weren't used to that. And in fact, early in the pandemic, we wondered whether this was a COVID specific thing, that, hey, maybe there's something weird about COVID that causes this mismatch between uh, pulse oximeters and arterial oxygen saturation. And um, it wasn't until um, later in the pandemic that um, we read some really um, profound work by um, um, an anthropology uh, professor, medical anthropologist at MIT, um, Dr. Moran Thomas, who uh, talked about her own experiences as a white woman who developed COVID and um, her black husband also developed COVID. And they talked, and she talked about the differences in the, their home pulse oximeter between her and her husband. And that led her to look into kind of the historical background of pulse oximeters. What she found was that this problem had been identified first in the 80s and 90s. In 1990, a group at the University of Chicago had demonstrated that black individuals had, um, had mismatch in pulse oximeter, and they at that time recommended that um, we use a higher cutoff in pulse oximetry for black individuals compared to white individuals. But I can say confidently, at least for me, I'd never really heard about that in my medical training. And, um, and at least I can say my, my co-authors in, in for, for our paper didn't know that, know that either. And so it clearly was not something that was well disseminated within, within medicine. That led us into um, a study where we looked at uh, more than 10,000 measurements, uh, pulse oximeter measurements from uh, more than 1,000 white patients um, at the University of Michigan, more than uh, 200 black patients at the University of Michigan, and also um, nearly 40,000 measurements um, from 7,000 white patients and 1,000 black patients in a national cohort of ICU patients from the MIMIC database. And we um, adjusted analyses uh, for age, sex, um, uh, severity of illness. And we created this unique variable um, called occult hypoxemia, which we defined um, as a clinically meaningful discrepancy between pulse oximeter saturation and arterial oxygen saturation. And we said that if a pulse oximeter read between 92 and 96%, but the arterial oxygen saturation was actually less than 88%, that this was what we called occult or missed hypoxemia. And we used 92 to 96% as kind of the pulse oximeter value that we were looking for because we felt this was a space where changes in oxygen supply um, are unlikely, right? If somebody has an oxygen saturation above 96%, well, you might 
um, wean their oxygen down. And if their oxygen saturation is less than 92%, well, you might bump up their oxygen a little bit. Because we wanted to mitigate differences um, in time between pulse oximeter and arterial oxygen levels. So here I present our main findings, and let me walk you through this figure. On the bottom, we see uh, paired measurements, SpO2 and SaO2, for white and black patients at each level of oxygen saturation, seen on the x-axis. On the y-axis, we have uh, the gold standard or true oxygen levels taken from arterial blood. In blue, we see values for white patients and red values for black patients. In this box and whisker plot, the middle horizontal line uh, represents the median value. Um, the edges of the box represent interquartile ranges, 25th and 75th percentile of values, and the lines represent 95% confidence intervals. We see that on average, black patients' true values were about 2% lower than white patient values at each level of oxygen saturation. In the University of Michigan cohort, this resulted in occult hypoxemia in 12% of measurements for black patients and in 4% of measurements in white patients. And these findings in adjusted analyses were similar. In the multicenter cohort, occult hypoxemia was found in 17% of patients, uh, in 17% of measurements in black patients, and in 6% of measurements in white patients. And finally, as we can see here, at values below 92% on pulse oximetry, many black patients actually had oxygen levels below 88%, a point when most clinicians would be making changes to the amount of oxygen that we'd be providing to patients. And we can see that at 92% SpO2, about 30% of values are actually less than 88%. However, once you get to 91%, we can see that more than half of black patients' measurements um, were below 88%. And this, to me, is a major problem. And since we published this research letter, there have been several studies that have published, um, that have commented on or evaluated this finding. On the left here, we see a letter written to Lancet Respiratory Medicine by Drs. Colon Hidalgo, Alusanya, and Harlan, three pulmonary critical care medicine trainees, calling for pulse oximeter reform. Below that is a study among uh, preterm infants showing a similar finding. Uh, in the top right, uh, as you guys well know, is a study led by Val. Um, and finally, a study uh, that used the same MIMIC database um, that looked at kind of the next step that um, showed occult hypo hypoxemia was associated with greater organ dysfunction. And even since I put this together, there have been other studies that have come out. Uh, a more recent one in critical care medicine that looked at perioperative patients that showed um, increased mortality among uh, in individuals who had occult hypoxemia, um, and several other studies also out of the UK as well. So um, next, let's think of the immense ramifications of this finding across the health system. Think of all the different places where we use pulse oximeters and use them regularly, whether it's um, at home, where we were um, telling patients with COVID to get a home pulse oximeter, check your pulse ox um, regularly, and if it gets low, uh, you might need to come into the hospital. Well, you know, our study you, uh, looked at medical-grade uh, pulse oximeters. We actually know very little about how well home pulse oximeters work in terms of their calibration, other than the fact that we know home pulse oximeters are worse. So that doesn't seem promising. Or how about in emergency medical services or outpatient clinics or the emergency department? where people are making decisions about 
either whether to start someone on oxygen um, or uh, whether to send someone to the hospital or admit them. As uh, intensivists, um, as, as consultants, um, you know, when we're seeing somebody on the wards and we're trying to decide whether to send them to the ICU or not, um, when we're deciding whether to discharge someone from the hospital. And then in terms of how we actually diagnose um, a medical disease, right, whether it's providing oxygen based on Medicare requirements, whether it's how we diagnose obstructive sleep apnea, whether it's how we decide um, what priority to list a person for lung transplantation. There are a lot of ramifications about this finding. Let's also think for a bit about how we arrived in this situation. I think we can um, break this into four distinct areas um, where we in healthcare uh, have failed. I think first, we can think about how pulse ox syndromes were developed. You know, the modern pulse ox syndrome was developed in Japan and calibrated predominantly on Japanese individuals. And once pulse ox syndromes began being used in the U.S., they were tested predominantly among healthy white males. And that's a failure on the part of pulse ox syndrome companies in the development and calibration of the devices, but also in terms of how we regulate medical devices themselves. I think there's a, a clear failure in the fact that this was identified uh, decades ago, and yet um, these results weren't disseminated broadly so that we recognize this to be a problem. Um, and then finally, I think this is a, it highlights what we prioritize in medical education, right? If th this was um, a major finding back in 1990, and yet um, it wasn't broadly educated to um, clinicians. And that has resulted in uh, decades of differential treatment uh, based on the color of one's skin. So um, let me pause there before we move into kind of the next section and see if uh, there are any questions or, uh, about this or anything related um, to that study. I have a quick question. This is Chuck Callahan from, uh, I do pediatric pulmonology and population health. Did your group look at uh, the potential impact of the findings uh, on your own outcomes for for individuals of uh, you know different racial groups. Yeah, we did not um, extend it out into the outcomes within our own institution just because we didn't think that we were powered to look at that. The um, JAMA network open did that at a much larger scale, and they looked at organ failures. Um, and uh, there and like I said, there was a more recent study that looked at um, paraoperative. Uh, perioperative outcomes. I know of um, several studies in the UK that have kind of gone towards taking this next step. Um, so I think there are several groups that have looked at it at a larger scale. We didn't look at our own outcomes um, either. You know, and I'll be honest, um, I didn't anticipate um, that there would be a meaningful detection in outcomes. You know what I mean? Like I, um, I anticipate, you know, I didn't think we needed to show that there was an outcome difference to recognize that this was a problem. And it surprises me that people are able to find um, tangible outcome differences down the line related to a cult hypoxia. Does that answer your question, Chuck? Yes, thank you. Mm -hmm. All right, so let's, um, now I wanted to sh shift gears a bit, but still talk about kind of a second example of uh, one of our recent studies that highlights uh, another area of structural racism in medicine. You know, um, as I'm sure 
many of you, many of you felt um, firsthand. You know, I had I couldn't communicate with many of the patients um, that I cared for with COVID uh, in the ICU, particularly early on. Um, and I don't know if this figure uh, resonates with you guys as much as it does for me, but in this international study of more than 2,000 patients with COVID from 70 ICUs in 14 countries, this study was taken from data from March and April of 2020. We can see this, what I find staggering results. Um, and it matches certainly what I saw locally as well, in that patients with COVID, particularly early in the pandemic, uh, were often deeply sedated. In this study at day seven, 50% of patients uh, were comatose. And even at two weeks, uh, we see that one in four patients were comatose. And there were many reasons for this, you know, especially early in the pandemic. We didn't know much about COVID. We were worried about exposing healthcare workers and limiting time in the room. And we were worried about self-extubation and, um, and patients had profound respiratory failure. And yet it's often made me wonder about how we provided care for these patients early in the pandemic and whether some of the high mortality rates that we saw early in the pandemic were less about COVID and more about how we cared for patients with COVID. Using the Richmond Agitation Sedation Scale, most studies define deep sedation as having a score of negative three, negative four, or negative five. And we know that deep sedation is quite common particularly in the early phases of critical illness. In this study of 11 Malaysian hospitals from 2012, we can see that on hospital day zero, about 75% of patients had deep, were deeply sedated. On day one, 67%, and on day two, more than 50%. So many patients are deeply sedated, particularly early in their hospital stay. Yet, on the other hand, which patients that we care for in the ICU really have to receive deep sedation. And there are really only three buckets of patients that have clear requirements for deep sedation. Those with respiratory failure with dyssynchrony or who are receiving paralytics, uh, those with intracranial hypertension, and those with refractory status epilepticus. So that means that the majority of patients that we care for undergoing mechanical ventilation should have sedatives minimized with the goal that they be calm, lucid, pain-free, uh, interactive, and cooperative with their care, which I recognize is a lot easier said than done, but this should still be our goal when we're caring for our patients. And the reason for this is because we know that deep sedation has important negative effects on our patients. Several studies have documented that deep sedation is associated with worse clinical outcomes such as longer time on mechanical ventilation, prolonged stays in the ICU, increased brain dysfunction manifested by delirium and coma, and worse long-term functional disability. We also know that deep sedation is associated with long-term mortality. This, that same study of 11 Malaysian hospitals um, has documented that early deep sedation um, uh, is common and also found that deep sedation, after accounting for severity of illness, was associated with worse survival um, than individuals who were not deeply sedated. And these results uh, make me think of um, many patients that I took care of early in the COVID pandemic, but in particular, um, made me think of one patient. Um, she was a Spanish-speaking female um, who was admitted uh, probably in April of 2020 
um, for COVID area. And we have a fairly small Spanish-speaking population here at the University of Michigan, and I'd say that very few of our healthcare staff um, speak Spanish. It's, um, uh, it, we just don't have that many um, individuals who are Spanish-speaking. But having trained in Miami and Dallas, my medical Spanish um, is rough, but generally passable. Um, and I remember this patient because she had a lot of anxiety, which is probably natural for someone as sick as she was. Um, but it was also clear that she had anxiety related to her inability to communicate um, how she felt with her medical team. And oftentimes this anxiety was treated medically with sedation. And I found that she was often kept at a level of deep sedation more for her comfort than for her medical illness. And this helped to highlight to me, the importance of language and communication in how we deliver our ICU care. It also made me interested in how we care for Spanish-speaking individuals in our ICU. And, and I found um, this to be interesting. For more than 10 years, um, we've known that Hispanic patients with respiratory failure um, have higher mortality than non-Hispanic patients. In three large uh, retrospective observational um, national studies, we see that Hispanic um, patients uh, have 20 to 90 percent um, higher odds of mortality. This was also demonstrated in the ROSE trial, a randomized trial that looked at early neuromuscular blockade for ARDS. We can see that when we looked specifically at the control arm, which provided usual care for respiratory failure, we see that Hispanic patients had about 12 percent higher mortality the non-Hispanic patients with respiratory failure. And this was actually the only subgroup within this trial that had a difference in mortality. But it's been over a decade since the first of these studies was published, and we still don't understand why Hispanic patients might have worse outcomes. So working with um, a, a brilliant sociologist at, the, uh, at NYU, Mary Armstrong Huff, um, we wanted to look into a possible mechanism for these findings. So we designed a study um, where we used the ROSE control arm to test the hypothesis that Hispanic patients were more likely to be deeply sedated than non-Hispanic patients, and that perhaps this could be a mechanism for their differences in outcome. What we found um, is that using the control group from that same randomized trial, we identified that Hispanic patients receiving mechanical ventilation spent about 20% more of their time deeply sedated than non-Hispanic patients. And this was um, true after accounting for uh, age, sex, uh, severity of illness, and BMI. And we know that this practice of deep sedation has previously been associated with higher mortality. It's led us to hypothesize that perhaps language barriers are a primary reason for this finding. What we also saw was that part of this is cultural within our hospitals. We found that hospitals with at least one enrolled Hispanic patient kept all their patients deeply sedated longer than other hospitals. And this is an important finding suggesting that how we care for our patients differs based on who they are, that our care contributes to these disparities, but also that the care um, we provide overall can, um, can affect the quality of our care. 
It also um, offers opportunities for intervention to try to reduce these disparities. So considering these two ways um, that our care influences patient outcomes, what can we do as we move forward? Well, Amy Kilborn has um, a great paper from 2006 that talks about the life cycle of health disparities research. In it, she defines three stages. The first being detecting, where we define health disparities, define populations, um, and measure these disparities. The second is where we actually understand the mechanisms that underlie these disparities at the patient, at the clinician, um, at the healthcare system level. And then in the third phase, we actually work to reduce or eliminate health disparities. And I think for, for far too long, we in pulmonary critical care have been um, in the detecting phase, where we've been identifying health disparities that exist across um, our population of patients, whether it's an ILD, transplant, COPD, critical illness. We've identified many different disparities across all these populations. I think it's time for us to start taking that step towards understanding and eliminating health disparities, understanding why they exist in order to then eliminate them. Dr. Kilburn also notes how many interlocking mechanisms contribute to disparities at the healthcare system level, at the clinician level, at the patient level. But there's a lot that goes into this that requires in many ways um, not a straightforward intervention, right? This isn't like providing drug X to fix um, a certain problem, right? These uh, interventions here are gonna require multiple different um, uh, behavioral interventions to try to fix uh, disparities. And so I wanted to start with our um, sedation work and talk about uh, some of the things that we've theorized as possible um, mechanisms and strategies and interventions. And starting at the ICU level, there are many different factors that relate to how we sedate our patients, right? Whether it's related to how many patients uh, we're caring for or a nurse is caring for, right? You can envision the more patients um, that you're caring for, uh, the more likely you are to deeply sedate patients. Almost like that example of how we treated our patients early during COVID. Uh, you can envision within an ICU the diversity of your staff, right? If you have more Spanish-speaking staff who can relate with patients, who can communicate with patients, it might reduce anxiety um, and, uh, and allow for um, non-pharmacologic treatment. We could also think about how our ICU um, is set up, right? If you have direct views of each patient versus you have a patient in the corner that you just have an opportunity to, to lay eyes on. Or how about visitor policies? We know that that's been impacted greatly during COVID, but just having someone at the bedside. Um, you know, I, I know for the patient that I was caring for, um, it, was, it was obvious how much um, joy and relief she took from speaking to uh, her son by phone. Um, you know, in a different time, he would have been at the bedside uh, with her and how that might have impacted her care. So there are a lot of different things at the ICU level that um, affect our ability to provide care, specifically related to how we um, uh, provide sedation to patients, 
and um, perhaps even more so how we provide sedation differently for some people versus others. At the clinician level, we might consider barriers such as language, um, knowledge, or bias, whether implicit or explicit, that might result in differences in how sedation is used. Finally, at the patient or family level, we might consider uh, difficulties in communication, knowledge, or ability to be present at the bedside as barriers that might result in different levels of sedation. And so then we can break down certain interventions that we might um, uh, implement in order to uh, reduce these disparities. So at the unit level, we might consider the implementation of um, using the ABCDF bundle for all patients, uh, assessing a patient's primary language on admission, and then mapping out what resources you have available um, to what is necessary for all of your patients, whether it's uh, the ability to provide 24-hour interpreter access, um, having bilingual staff, um, or ensuring that social workers assistance is provided for all families. And then at the clinician level, um, interventions might include ensuring that um, we're doing a structured sedation assessment and a structured delirium assessment on all of our patients. Um, that we use, uh, that we ensure that when we do these assessments, um, we're making sure that we know an individual's primary language and making sure that we have interpreters services available uh, when we're doing those assessments. And also that we have structured communication tools available um, either with visual and analog scales or bilingual response options um, so that we can communicate more easily with all of our patients. And we hope that together these things might work um, at at multiple levels uh, to promote equitable delivery of sedation. And now let's shift gears back to pulse oximeters. What can we do moving forward there? Well, first, I think the bottom line is uh, we need better pulse oximeters, right? We need pulse oximeters that provide equally accurate values regardless of the color of wood skin. Our colleagues in engineering uh, feel that an engineering solution like using more than two wavelengths of light within a pulse oximeter, uh, has actually been around for decades, but the motivation to make that switch has been lacking on the part of pulse oximeter companies. Second, it's clear that um, FDA and device companies need to increase the diversity of their test subjects. And when we say, say diversity, we mean by gender, uh, skin color, disability. I also think that med medical devices should be treated more like drug trials. Oximeters were uniquely were uniformly tested on healthy patients, yet you would never approve a drug after testing it only on healthy subjects. You would test it on the population for whom the drug would be used. And here, pulse oximeters needed to be tested on six patients in a hospital. Third, uh, we need to ensure that we teach in medical education, um, that what we teach in medical education focuses on a diverse population of individuals, um, just as we care for uh, um, a diverse population of, of patients. Right? We need to make sure that our medical education is aligned with our, our medical care. And finally, we need to talk about what we're going to do with all these pulse oximeters out there um, that might not work as well for certain patients um, over others. Right? This is going to be a big list um, to try to make sure that 
the pulse oximeters that are being used by our healthcare system are, are accurate for all individuals. So I wanted to um, thank you all for uh, having me here and, and um, I hope that we can have a conversation about, um, about this and other topics. Thanks.